1: led off by the news, of course, that Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden has selected his running mate, and it is not Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, We'll have some comment about that later. But we want to start out with a very interesting story. We are fortunate to have with us Fritz Peterson, the president of Northern Michigan University, on the other line. President Erickson, thank you for joining us.
2: Uh, thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate
1: it. Okay. On April thirtieth, the Northern Michigan University Board of Trustees was one of the first boards in the country to pass a resolution saying Northern Michigan University would open with in-person right. face-to-face classes in the fall of twenty twenty, which is fast upon us. Since then, President Fritz Erickson has assembled twelve COVID-19 task forces to assure the reopening will be as safe as possible. So President Erickson, uh, tell me how you decided so quickly and decisively last spring to do this and stay on track and apparently ready right now to open. And I think it's really quite an achievement.
2: Yeah, we really are ready to open. Uh, Classes start Monday morning. Our students have been moving in for the last So uh, we put a lot of protocols in place that we think are going to really help minimize risk for our students, our faculty, and staff. And we actually made the decision to start laying out plans pretty much two days after we went to remote learning in March, because we never closed. I had so many phone calls from parents that said, you know, Marquette's safe please keep my son or daughter there. So we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students still living with us all last uh, semester. We learned how to feed everybody safely. We learned how to operate that way. And so the decision by the board on April 30th was really a natural extension of the work that we had already done.
1: Well, back in the spring, were the students in their rooms uh, online, or were they actually still in the classroom during the day, or was there a mix? They were, they were in their rooms online.
2: Um, and uh, we, we had followed, of course, all the governor's uh, directives, uh, but the students felt, many of the students just felt safer being here online. And I know a lot of parents, did. I, I talked parents have said, you know, look, we've got uh, you know grandma and grandpa living at home. I'd really not rather not have my son or daughter come uh, home. Please keep them on the campus. And national research has clearly shown that the safest place for a college student to be right now is on their college campus. And so that's how we were able to make that commitment. And then, of course, as you mentioned, we had. We had work groups and experts. We hired outside uh, uh, experts, uh, leading um, infectious disease uh, person out of the United States Air Force that does a lot of work in the area of um, biological warfare and that sort of stuff come um, help guide us. And so we were able to put in a, a set of comprehensive protocols, including testing everybody, that I think has put us in a pretty good position for classes to start on Monday.
1: Well, in the spring, were there some students who went home? uh, What percentage do you think went home out of the entire student body?
2: Yeah, well, we have, uh, if we talk about our residence hall, we had about 40% of our students stay with us through the residence hall. It's a little bit more difficult to determine who stayed you know, in their off-campus apartment and, and so forth. Um, uh, so it's really hard to pen exactly what that number uh, is, but it continues to, to uh, be pretty amazing how many students stayed here throughout the, throughout the whole community.
1: Yeah, well, even if the students uh, went home, they still were able to get all the instruction online that the students who stayed on campus got, right? Exactly the uh, same.
2: Absolutely. And one of the uh, tools that we have in place, we have been providing all of our students with laptops as part of their tuition for, you know, 25 years. And so all of our students had the technology uh, to be able to do that. All the software, they just grabbed their laptops that, that we provided them. And those that went home just to, took them and were able to continue as if they were here on campus. The other thing is, We made a commitment to the whole of the UP that we would provide high-speed wireless um, to 100, and I think we're at 105, 108 communities now in the UP. We, We just directly took on the whole issue of rural broadband because we thought it was important over the last 10 years, which has really paid off for a lot of families here that couldn't have Internet access any other way. Not only our students, but so many community members.
1: Now, you're supposed to open for in-person, face-to-face classes on Monday, August Monday. 17th, right? That's right. Now, does that mean that all the students who want to come back to campus, let's say 100% decided we want to come back to campus, you can accommodate all those. Let me. You can answer that question. And then, secondly, how many... Of all your students, do you think are actually going to come back to campus? I mean, is it going to be 70%, 80 90%? Are some of them going to stay at home and do it through online like they did last spring?
2: So, what? yeah, what we're doing is uh, just about 80% of our classes uh, come Monday are in some form of face-to-face. Now, even within that, we've provided the opportunity for students to be able to take those classes uh through zoom or other form of remote learning because even you know the students living in the dorm and they're not feeling well we don't want them to come to class but we'd like them to be able to continue with the class and so our incredibly creative faculty have found ways in which to be able to do effectively both um and, and uh and uh, apparently making all kinds of accommodations i heard of a wonderful biology faculty member this morning who asked? class, said, I'm not able to get everybody in here. Would anybody be interested in coming in and uh, we do a suction su- at seven o'clock in the morning? And I heard this morning the 45 students immediately said, "I'd be happy to do 7 a.m." Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't think I'd ever done 7 a.m. You know, uh, <laughs> when I was 18, but it's just really impressive that kind of creativity.
1: Absolutely. We are talking to uh, President Fritz Erickson of Northern Michigan University in Marquette. Uh, This is amazing that you've been able to pull this off. You are one of 15 public universities in Michigan. Uh, Have you heard if any of the other 14 are doing anything like what you're doing and or maybe even in other states, uh, how common is what you're doing?
2: Well, one of the things that, um, I so love about public higher education in Michigan is that we have 15 different institutions. You know, we're located on the shores of, of Lake Superior, so there's not a big population north of us, just a great big lake. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, our prevalence rates are so low uh, that it enables us to do some things that don't fit other schools. And this is not a better or worse Worst thing, I think. Some, institi- you know, each institution is doing what they believe is the right thing to do, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly supportive. Most, most schools in Michigan are opening. Uh, most public institutions are opening to some form of face-to-face, and are, and have adapted uh, calendars. You know, for right. example, we're well, opening then, but- Monday so that we can send everybody home by Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, Mr. President, a... Mr. President I, honest to gosh, I want to keep going with this conversation, but we're out of our time oh, here, sorry. but we'll get you back in a couple of yeah, weeks. A... I want to get a report card on uh, how everything has gone in the fall. So thank you, President Chris Erickson, President of Northern Michigan University, for being our guest.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me, Bill.
1: We'll be back in a minute. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MDN. Here's Bill.
1: We have returned with... A special guest, Representative Andrea Schroeder, a Republican representing the 43rd House District in Oakland County. I believe the 43rd District includes the city of Lake Angeles and the village of Clarkston and I think all of Independence Township and a big chunk of Waterford Township. That's correct. So, Representative Schroeder, thank you for being our guest, and thank you for talking about uh, what we're going to talk about, which is you and your colleagues in the legislature are working very hard right now to put together a back-to-school plan this weekend. You're trying to get it done. Some districts have already opened. So what's going on?
3: Well, you know, we are, we're working really hard with the legislature, with the bills that are now in the Senate and the governor's office and the uh, MDE. to to get this together so that our school districts have some kind of certainty on what they need to do and what the expectations are going to be um, as we return to school. And really what we're hoping is that um, we're, you know, the plan that we have in the legislature right now is really about making sure that we're empowering the parents and the school districts to provide the best student learning environment, keeping all of our kiddos safe and our staff members safe. Um, So that's a lot of moving parts. But I feel like we're, we're really getting somewhere to, to having something completed.
1: Well, Representative Schroeder, you know, the general public, I think, is confused at this point about what is going to happen in the various school districts and who determines what is going to be done. I mean, some districts, as I understand it, have already opened. Mm-hmm. And uh, what would happen if you and the governor cannot agree this weekend on a plan? Does that mean, you know all schools in Michigan, K-12 public schools, shut down? Or does it mean they're going to continue to move forward individually, decide what they want to do anyway, regardless of what you do with the governor this weekend?
3: Well, I I think that um, the idea that they would shut down, uh, I don't think that that's really a possibility. Remember that we're not talking about budget bills here. That's a a totally separate
2: process.
3: So these are opening bills. And we are a state that has always had very strong local control. Goal. And um, and and I'm a big supporter of the local control, particularly at the school district level. So the schools are doing the best they can right now in choosing what works best for their community and on how they want to reopen the schools. They've had different plans. I know my districts in my in my house district, my school districts just recently this week revised their plans because. They're just not certain uh, of what data to, to listen to and, and what the best path forward is. So um, they revised their plans, but they're good, solid plans. Uh, and I'm not aware of any school district that's that seriously considering not opening their schools. Well, um, I think they're all working individually and And, you know, using their local control on what's going to be the best fit for our community. So what
1: you and your colleagues in the House and Senate are working on with the governor this weekend is to what set kind of minimal basic standards or an outline for what every district ought to be doing. And well, if you can't agree, they're going to go ahead individually and just decide on their own. Is that are those the
3: options? Well, I think really what it is is uh, and, and honestly, even from the very beginning, uh, I don't think that the legislature and the governor's plans were far apart from the beginning. Everybody wants the same thing. We need to come up with with uh, a structure that we can uh, return to school safely and responsibly and in a sensible manner that's based on the circumstances at that time so uh, really the plans are to make sure that that learning is possible everywhere whether you're doing something virtual or distance learning or in person if that works for your district and making sure that parents have some uh, you know have some way of knowing that their kids are actually getting educated and they're getting the education that they need by having benchmarks uh, included in in the plans, in the education plans that the schools are putting together, so that there's some certainty on are we doing what we're doing with the goal is educating our kids. So the plans that we're putting together incorporate a lot of these these different elements, so that we can have uh, certainty that our staff and our kids are safe in the schools and that we are doing what the purpose of the schools is, which is educating our kids and giving parents some sense um, that that their kids are getting the education that they deserve.
1: Well, now, I, I know you don't want to think this way, but if everything fell apart this weekend uh, with the legislature and the governor, you could not agree on a plan, or maybe you pass legislation, sent it to the governor, she vetoes it, you don't have the votes to override or veto or whatever, and it all falls apart, you're saying basically every school district is still going to open or however it sees fit and in whatever way, shape, or form it wants to, right?
3: Uh Sure. I mean, the schools have to be open in some capacity, and it's going to be up to each individual district. Now, you're right. I don't see that happening. I think we're very close. I think I think we were very close 48 hours ago. Um, so I think very shortly we're going to have some kind of an agreement, something that we can work on so that the Senate, when they convene tomorrow, they have something concrete to discuss and hammer out. And then on Monday, when I'm back in Lansing with the rest of my House colleagues, Uh, you know, we'll have something that we're working on. Um, uh, You know, I'm confident that we're going to be able to get this together because, like I said, from the very beginning, it wasn't like we were oceans apart on multiple areas.
1: The uh, governor is working pretty close with you uh, and her advisors on this?
3: I would say, uh, first of all, I am not in the room where it's happening, but from everything, because one of my bills is part of the bill package, I am kept up to date on it. And I would say that the, the conversations that do include the governor's office and all of our other policy people have been um, have been going very well. Yes.
1: There was some hard rhetoric this week from the president of the Michigan Education Association indicating that teachers feel that they're being dissed and not respected in terms of whatever you all are coming up with. And they even raised the specter of a job action, which is frankly a euphemism for strike, which I don't think anybody wants to see happen. I mean, do you have any reservations or concerns about teachers' attitudes on this? Are they being represented fairly, do you think, in all these negotiations between legislators and the governor this weekend?
3: Well, I can tell you from the very beginning of putting um, the House plans together, teachers were always included and at the table because they're a stakeholder. So they were always included in the conversations with it. And in in my district, what I do here, I have two education councils um, with each of my school districts. We meet every month, and it's teachers and parents and administrators and union representatives, um, and we share a meal, and we spend a couple of hours touching base with each other so we know that collectively – I'm representing my school districts and that we're we're we have the same priorities and um I know that I'm fortunate that I have a very strong relationship with my school districts this way so that so that I can be their voice in there so I think it's unfortunate if teachers think that in in other areas that their voices are not being heard or they're not being included in the in the discussions i know that they were from the very beginning uh with representative hornberger on a policy level with this and as far as the idea of taking some kind of action um i just don't think it's worth commenting on right i just don't see that as a viable possibility
1: well listen you got your work cut out for you this weekend but i know you're up to the task representative andrea schroeder of the 43rd house district republican of independence township thank you so much for being our guest giving such a cogent explanation of all the machinations behind closed doors on back to school. Thank you. you. We'll be back in a minute.
0: You're listening to the political insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill.
1: We are back, and I just want to make a few comments following up on uh, what our guest just said, Andrea Schroeder, state representative from Independence Township in Oakland County, and that is that she does not believe that there are going to be teacher strikes over school reopening conditions. But the president of the state's largest teachers union has not ruled out using what she calls job actions to get local school boards to the bargaining table to hammer out plans for safely reopening the schools this fall. Uh, Right now, the MEA head, Michigan Education Association head, Paula Herbart, said her members, quote, who are nervous and rightly so, unquote, want more input on what schools will look like if the classrooms are reopened. And Herbart said, continuing here with a quote, almost all of them in almost every district, we are finding that they are not inviting us to the bargaining table over health and safety conditions, which she notes are required by law. And she said, a few districts are getting it right, quote unquote, while others are merely handing out a document to the staff, that's the teaching staff, and saying, Well, what do you think about that? Well, that's not bargaining, according to President Herbart. And in some cases, she indicates some unfair labor practices complaints have been filed. So as for the options that teachers have to get to the table, she says, postcard writing and attending school board meetings are possible along with, quote, up to and including a job action could be on the table, unquote. Well, does that mean not showing up for work? That's the definition of a job action, she said. Well, when she's reminded that some might use the word strike, which, by the way, are illegal in Michigan for public teachers, she said, quote, well, there are different terms for everything, unquote. So she simply concluded by saying, we're letting them know that everything that our members need to do to get our voices heard is legitimate action, including what some would call a strike. And asked if that would be a last resort, she says, absolutely. Now, item number two, different subject, and absolutely, this was the biggest news this week. I could have let off the program with it. And that is that Governor Gretchen Whitmer was not asked by Democratic presidential putative nominee Joe Biden to be his running mate, despite a lot of speculation that she might be. Instead, as everybody knows by now, it was U.S. Senator Kamala Harris of California. But Gretchen Whitmer uh, apparently, according to former Governor Jim Blanchard, who said this on a radio interview during the week, apparently— Uh, Some time ago, quote-unquote, Gretchen Whitmer asked to have her name withdrawn from consideration for vice president by Joe Biden, but the presumptive Democratic nominee would not do it. Uh, So Blanchard, the former governor of Michigan, told Michigan's big show this week, The host, Michael Patrick Shields, that Whitmer's handling of COVID-19 plus her, quote, great personality for television, unquote, plus her rise as an incredible leader, quote, unquote, kept her on Biden's list as he looked to keep alive as many options as possible. Uh, We had some other news this week. Item number three, this is actually my favorite of all, eagle versus eagle. We had an American bald eagle over Lake Michigan just offshore from Escanaba in the Upper Peninsula attack a Department of Michigan government drone, an eagle. Drone. What is an Eagle drone? Well, it's like uh, Environmental Great Lakes Energy uh, Department. The acronym is Eagle, E G L E, but a real Eagle spelled correctly, E A G L E, attacked the state government Eagle and won. And the department drone plummeted into Lake Michigan, never to be recovered. So Score one for our fine-feathered friend, the bald eagle. Item number four, a northern Michigan orchard sued Governor Gretchen Whitmer this week to prevent the shutdown of business. A northern Michigan orchard filed a court of claims lawsuit against Big Gretch on Wednesday to prevent any administrative action that would effectively shut down its operation. What else this week? I'd say item number five. uh, We have the cancellation. Uh, This is not like state government action, but you could argue as a direct result of state government action, the shutdown through executive order in response to the coronavirus by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The Big Ten canceled its fall football season. For that matter, so did the Pac-12. So that is a big bummer for University of Michigan, uh, Wolverines, the Michigan State University Spartans. uh, Very sad day at Black Rock. Uh, I'll mention just in closing this segment that there was a great memorial service well attended under the circumstances in northern Michigan at Interlochen Academy last week, last Thursday, August 6th, uh, in memory of the late William G. Milliken, who died last October. And after several delays, there was a memorial service with Governor Whitmer speaking And a number of other notables, including Arlie Brower, the former head of the security detail for Governor Milliken. Uh, Bill Milliken Jr. uh, also spoke and, in essence, moderated the proceedings. Uh, Bill Rustem, a former aide, not only to Governor Milliken, but to former Governor Rick Snyder an expert on environmental matters, uh, gave a very eloquent talk. Uh, Jack Lessenberry and Chuck Stokes, two media figures from Metro Detroit area, they spoke. Uh, We even had a celebrity famous for being famous. Paris Hilton was in the crowd. Why was Paris Hilton there? Because Apparently, she is romantically involved with a distant relative of the Millican family. So this all happened last week in honor of Michigan's longest-serving governor, 14 years. I'll give you a few quotes here from the governor that I didn't give you last week. This was what he said as he prepared to become governor in January of 1969 when Governor George Romney resigned, to become Secretary of Housing and Urban Development in the Nixon administration, Governor Milliken said, it is my greatest hope that this administration will be known for its compassion, its idealism, its candor, and its toughness in the pursuit of public ends. He also talked just a year later in 1970 He said, we have long talked about our progress, but we must now be concerned as well about our preservation. We cannot have prosperity at the expense of posterity. A month later, he said the problems of the cities of Michigan are the problems of all citizens of Michigan. Governor Milliken was well known for his support for the city of Detroit, even though he, Governor Milliken was from the opposite end of the Lower Peninsula in Traverse City, and Governor Milliken developed a famous relationship with Detroit Mayor Coleman Young. They were called the odd couple. You couldn't have imagined two different personalities, and yet they became very good friends and political allies almost, particularly in trying to bolster the fortunes of always beleaguered Detroit. I'm going to be back in a minute with our final guest. Stay tuned.
0: This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill.
1: We are back, and we have with us on the other line Senator Lana Tice. She is a Republican from the 22nd Senate District, which includes all of Livingston County and a major portion of Western Washington County. And she is also chair of the Education and Career Readiness Committee in the Senate. Thank you for being our guest, Senator Tice. Well, you're right in the middle of the negotiations with the governor on trying to come up with a back-to-school plan for K-12 public education. education. Education uh, opening uh, this week. Some schools already open. uh, But you've got a unique idea that you're trying to get incorporated, I guess, into these plans either immediately or at some point, that you call learning pads. Uh, People have called them elsewhere around the country pods. So maybe you can explain what the difference is between a pod and a pad when it comes to learning (laughs) and what your idea is and why you think it could be a big plus for Michigan K-12 education.
4: So there's a couple of points in just your introduction that I want to start with. So it's not just opening schools. It's schools starting and then schools continuing through the year. And the reason we call them learning pads, we just we wanted to make it a different option, help people recognize that this is the public option. This isn't the private option. And so it's learning pads, a safe place for students to land. And right now, across the country, there are groups of families that are coming together to help teach their children because they're uncomfortable with the public option, whether it's going uh, in person, where, whether or not they have to have masks, whether or not they have to have a completely changed environment, uh, the exposure that's associated with all of the kids in the larger school. Uh, what those families are doing is they're coming together by neighborhood, and they're hiring teachers um, away from the school district sometimes. They're hiring retired teachers sometimes. And then other times it's, it's a family, one of the members of the family is, is going to homeschool the rest of the neighborhood. So, I think that's a great idea for for people who can afford it if that's what they want to do, but I was very concerned about uh, somebody like a, a, a single waitress or waiter that that, that has a child, that they're going to end up having to figure out whether or not they're going to do daycare or leave them at home or try to figure out how to educate their kid. And I think it's really important for equity in education that we provide a public option that does the same thing. And when I talk to parents about it, they love this idea. So this the community would come together, the local subdivision would come together, and they'd find a community center or a library. Uh, where they have a room and they can teach children from there. And the the public school is going to provide the the teacher to be more of a mentor at that point, and they're going to receive their, their learning through technology. So it's still distance teaching, uh, but now they have a mentor, a direct in-person uh, teacher there to help them get through any issues that they might have and make sure that they stay on target because that's a really hard thing to do when you're at home as a parent, say if you're trying to even work from home trying to keep them on the technology and paying attention to what it is that their um, their school is trying to provide. There's less exposure because they're only exposed to the students that they would normally be exposed to within the neighborhood. They're not traveling to and from school on a bus, and they're not being exposed to the larger uh, school building. So I, I I see it as an option and one that's better for teachers, that's better for students, and it still keeps them. There's a continuity of learning, so it still keeps them learning along the same curriculum that they would have been learning had they been in the, in the traditional school district, uh, in the traditional school building. So they'll pick up what they lost last year. They'll be able to continue on this year. And hopefully, um, if if this continues, because we have no idea what's going to happen with COVID, they now have a, a strong platform for distance teaching in the future.
1: In other words, this is kind of a collective of individual online learning from a home instead of, let's say, three students in three different private homes sitting there in front of a screen learning online, they would be part of a group that would meet in some kind of agreed-upon building with other students, however many you might pull together. And in a sense, they would have a virtual uh, classroom with a teacher remotely in the school interacting with them online. Is that what the idea is?
4: Exactly. Think one-room schoolhouse yeah with a distance teaching twist.
1: Right. Well, that really sounds fascinating.
4: How big could these groups grow to be? Do you think? Well, they're happening all over the country already, and a, uh, what they're doing there is is four to eight kids generally. I think this is going to need at least ten in order to make it a viable option. And the teachers that we're looking at are are the teachers that are um, they they might have some sort of extra risk associated with being in the traditional building or they might be they might have been on the edge of retirement they still want to teach but they don't want to take on the risk of covid this is a much lower level of risk for them, and the teachers I talk to are very, very excited about that. And then also, as an an assistant maybe, or or we'd need to speak with the school groups on it, the teaching groups on it, the students that just came out of college need to do in-person teaching. That's part of the requirement for their teaching certificate. But right now, many of those students have no place to go because the schools have decided to go entirely online. So this would be an option for them to get their in-person teaching requirement done as well.
1: Wow. In other words, when you talk about the one-room schoolhouse, of course— you know, nowadays people have a hard time getting their arms around what that once meant. And yet it was the norm in the 19th century. So you'd have kids in a a classroom in a schoolhouse that would be from the first grade up to, let's say, the ninth grade level. So the teacher had to teach all those students at different levels. And that's what this online teacher would have to be doing for these students in these learning pads, right? I mean, in other words, relate to different students at different levels of education uh in their instruction right
4: so i'm i'm seeing it aimed more at the k through five while the ninth grader could could come over to whatever the community center was for a homeschool help uh i see it more as k through five because those are the ones we can't leave alone i got um but the the education is coming the curriculum is coming through the technology so there, the teacher that's teaching the content is distance teaching. And the person that's in the room with them is a mentor. So they can help them with whatever math questions they have or making sure, like I said, that they're staying on task with the curriculum that's being put before them. But they're not the ones providing the content. That's the distance teaching that's coming from the traditional school.
1: Would you say there's room for a learning pad to include students above the K-5 level?
4: I think that there absolutely is. It's just going to be a matter of whether or not the parents uh, think that that's the best way to do it. I, I, what my primary goal here is to make sure that we're providing options for parents in the traditional public environment that the, uh, frankly, the haves are doing right now. Right, that the people that have the financial wherewithal. Are already doing this well, The people that don't have the financial wherewithal are just waiting to see what options are going to be available to them and what's best for their family and I want us to provide a public option for them too right well how do you
1: go about incorporating this in what you're discussing with the governor this weekend uh, the legislature and the governor trying to you know agree on how to open the schools and how to conduct it? So, I mean is this part of the discussion or is this a long-term concept that you hope will take place
4: I would would love if we can get it worked out this week, but obviously it's it's a it's complicated. Though it's not as complicated as it seems. There are very similar things happening with traditional schools uh, doing public options uh, for distance learning right now, just in a much smaller scale. Unfortunately, we just saw an auditor general report yesterday that that spoke to. The difficulties associated with this, and, and we need to make sure that we are providing a, a significant education, uh, a rigorous education for our children going through distance teaching as well. And I think this very much helps to do that. But we need to make sure that uh, we need to make sure that our kids are learning as well with whatever environment we're creating right now as they would if they were in person. Because we don't know how long things are going to be in upheaval, and we still have to educate the kids.
1: This veiled threat that we got this week from the president of the Michigan Education Association, uh, Paula Herbart, that uh, job action might ensue from teachers if they are dissed which she feels they are. Uh, Somebody said, wait a second, doesn't that mean a strike, which is illegal? I mean, do you see that possibly happening with teachers doing something like that if they're unhappy with uh, either what the legislature and governor produced this weekend or the way things are going in various school districts around the state, regardless of what the legislature and governor do?
4: I would be really disappointed if it did. Most of the teachers I speak to are very interested in making sure that the children are being educated. Many of them, are able to go back and want to. They all understand that, that in-person education, uh, at least the way things are being done right now, is a much more effective way to educate. And they got into education to help the kids in the first place. So they, that's, this is, um, I, I struggle with the threat, but I understand the concern as well. If you think about what teachers deal with every year, they that there's a flu season, and the flu goes screaming through the school building, and all the kids and all the teachers get it happens every year. And so that's the environment they're thinking of when they're thinking about COVID. And we do need to have, a, we need to be very cognizant of the actual risks involved. We need to understand what the th- real threats are to our kids and to our teachers. And then we need to act accordingly. And that's why I like the pods, our learning pads so much is because it reduces all of the risks while still allowing in-person education.
1: Sounds like you've come up with a great idea, Senator Lana Tice. I wish you luck. 22nd Senate District, Livingston in Washington County. Senator Tice, thank you for being our guest on The Political Insider.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
1: Have a great weekend, and we will be back next week.